Bibles now, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 5. For these past few months, we've been studying what I believe to be one of the most important texts, if not the most important text that we find in the Bible. I know there are some of you who may think, well, I, I believe that Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10, those are the most important verses in the Bible. And I would agree that those are very important verses because they declare the grace of God in salvation and they rule out our works as any means of righteousness. And there are some who would say, well, I believe that John 3.16, that's the most important verse that you find in the Bible. And again, I would say that knowing Christ's sacrifice and recognizing the love of Christ for sinners and his willingness to come into the world to save us from our sins... That is certainly the essence of the gospel, and that is one of the most important things that we find in the Bible. But I also believe that what we find here in the book of Matthew ranks right up there with some of the most important things that we find in Scripture. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, which we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount, contain some of the most important things that Jesus said while he was here on this earth. These are declarations of Christ about the right to live in his kingdom. And these are verses that are defining for Christians because if you claim that you love Christ or you can say all that you want that you do love Christ and that you are his follower, but unless you have the qualifications that Jesus outlines here, then you are still hopelessly lost in your sins. And that might seem like a very bold statement to make. And there are some people who would think by that that we're saying that you can work for your salvation, that we're setting a standard here, some rules for you to live by. And if you don't live by these rules, then you can't come to the party. But nothing could be further from the truth because what Jesus does in these chapters is to rule out all man-made rules. He takes us back into the Old Testament and he shows us that there is a standard of righteousness that we must keep that is impossible for us to live by. And that is actually the purpose of God's law. This is why we still teach the, uh, the law of the Old Testament because the law does not save us, it condemns us. It shows us how far we fall short of God's glory. And it creates, creates in us such despair that the only thing that we can possibly do is to turn to the cross of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Here we see the perfection of God. We see the standard that God requires for us to live by. And we see that the only way that we can have that standard is for Jesus Christ to give it to us and to redeem us from all of the penalty of our sin. And so when I say that these are some of the most important verses in Scripture, that's why that I say it. And these verses that we're reading today, Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48, are Scriptures that perhaps better than all the ones that we've read so far that show us how far short we really do fall of God's standard. Now, two weeks ago, we read these verses, and I want to read them again as we consider the subject this morning, the second part of this, the gospel according to you. Now, if you'd please, please stand with me and look at Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. Matthew 5, beginning in verse number 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. 
that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if he love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the reading of your word and these very telling words that Jesus gives today. And I ask you, Lord, you might help us to see these more clearly, to see what you mean when you tell us that we are to love our neighbors and we are to treat our enemies well. And Lord, may we indeed fulfill that royal law to love our neighbor as ourselves. Bless in the message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now we read that statement and that just seems very strange to us. Now I've been reading the Bible for now close to 50 years. And I don't know that I've ever found in Scripture such a statement as this. The only place that I've ever found it reading through the entire Bible is in Matthew 5 verse number 43. And of course when Jesus gives the statement here, he is refuting it with all the, the power of Almighty God, with all the contempt that he can possibly have for it, he stands against a statement such as this. But we're left wondering, as we read the Scriptures here, how did these people ever come to the idea that the thing that they were supposed to do was to love their neighbor, but to hate their enemy? And I want to take you back to the first part of the message of a couple of weeks ago. And I want to remind you that the Jews were very good at selective reading of the Scripture. They would take the Old Testament and they would pick out the parts or pick out certain things that they wanted to teach on. And they would attach their meaning to that Scripture. And then they would ignore everything else that seemed to refute their interpretation. Now, Jesus gives... Six examples of how the Pharisees had done this with the Scriptures and how they had gone about to try to establish a substandard type of righteousness that was not a righteousness that God would accept. And so six times Jesus goes through this and he shows how they had twisted, how they had perverted, how they had obfuscated, how they had skipped, how they had misinterpreted the law of God. So by the time that Jesus begins to speak about this, the law of God was so far away from what God intended that you really couldn't even hardly recognize it anymore. And that's why Jesus begins each of these sections in this part of Matthew 5 with this statement, "Ye have heard that it hath been said, or it hath been said. And what follows each of those statements are the twisting of the Pharisees, the wrong interpretation of the Scripture. Jesus followed up with each misinterpretation with his own explanation of what the Scripture said. And so he would say, but I say unto you. And then he began to speak with the authority of Almighty God. He began to speak with the, as the one who is the lawgiver, the one who has the right to speak for God because he is in fact God himself. But how did the Jews ever get such a twisted meaning of this? That you are to love your enemy, but, or love your neighbor, but you are to hate your enemy. Well, it began with this, and that is the definitions of the Jews. How you define the words makes all the difference. It depends on how you define that word neighbor. Love your neighbor. That is a great saying, and the Jews absolutely did uphold that. They did believe that they were supposed to love their neighbors. But the problem is, how do you define who is your neighbor? 
And what they had done, and they had changed the meaning of this, they have narrowed the definition of neighbor down to a person who thinks like me, a person who looks like me, a person who does what I do, and in essence, a person who is exactly just like me. My neighbor is the people that I already like. My neighbor is the people that are already in my group. They're the ones that are in my clique. And in effect, they are actually a mirror image of me. And so if you let me define who my neighbor is, then I'll have no trouble at all keeping this commandment that Jesus gave or that Moses gave. I can keep it if you let me say who my neighbor is. But it gets even worse than that because by the time of the Pharisees, the, na- uh, the, the Pharisees had, na- had, had narrowed down this definition of neighbor to be so fine that in identifying who their neighbors were, they also identified who their enemies were. And their enemies were actually anybody who was outside their group. And so if the Bible says that I am supposed to love my enemy, then it must mean that there's some, or love my neighbor, then it must mean there's something else that's intended for my enemy, something different for those who are not defined as my neighbor. And so down through the centuries, the Jews had taken God's positive command that they are to love their neighbor, and they had turned that into a negative injunction that they were also to hate their enemies. And it actually became an imperative to them. This became the most important thing. Love was not really the most important thing, but it was the hatred for anybody who was not like them. And so they began to hate everyone else. The Pharisees hated the publicans. They hated the Sadducees. They hated the Romans. They hated sinners. And all of those people returned their hatred equally. And it all came from this fact that the Jews had read the law selectively. They'd picked out the parts that they want, when if they'd only explored it just a little bit more, they would have found out that God had a much different definition of neighbor. It was a much broader definition. Because God said to them that you are to love the stranger that is among you. You are to love the one who is not like you, who doesn't act like you, and doesn't do the things that you do. You are to love him because he says, you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. And then they neglected perhaps what was the most important part of that commandment when the Bible said that they were to love their neighbor as their self. The Old Testament command was as thyself. And that little piece of information that's tacked on to that saying, love your neighbor, but love him as yourself, set a standard that was so high that in order to be good Jews, in order to be good pharisaical, self-righteous Jews, they had to get rid of that part of it. If they didn't get rid of it, if they didn't just completely forget that part, then of course they could not be justified in their own self-righteousness. They were shot down before they ever began. And so they defined the terms on their own terms, and they went about to establish their own righteousness, and they claimed that they were followers of God. Now before I get into Jesus' correction of this evil opinion... And that's actually going to come in the next couple of messages. I want to deal with a question that comes naturally to our minds. Whenever we think about the Old Testament and we read what is there, most of us do think that what Christ came to do was to change the Old Testament. And he came to put a new set of laws into effect. And we have the idea that the gospel is a different set of laws than what we find in the Old Testament. And so we read there in, in the Old Testament about killing 
and about bloodshed. And we read about all those Old Testament scriptures that God told Israel to do a certain thing to their enemies. And so we're confused by that. And we think that there must have been a different standard that Jesus set when he got to the New Testament. So how are we going to reconcile that? And I think it's a good question for us to consider. How do you reconcile what God told Israel to do to their enemies with the statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 5.44, 5.43, and 5.44 that we are to love our neighbors and to love our enemies? So how is it then that what happened in the Old Testament does not nullify Jesus' claim in verse number 17, that he didn't, did not come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it. How are you going to get those two things together? Now, that's what I want to talk to you about today. That's the part we'll discuss today. And that is the difficulties that we find in the Old Testament. Now, numerous times we find in the Old Testament how that God poured out his wrath on anybody who stood in Israel's way. I haven't taken the time and... I don't know if anybody has really added up all the many references that are in the Old Testament where God said to the people, and God gave them a command to destroy people, destroy even whole nations of people when they got in Israel's way. I suppose that I've been asked a dozen times to explain how that God could possibly give a command to Israel and tell them to kill not just soldiers and kill not just men, but God said, you go in and you kill the women. And you kill the children, you kill the infants, you kill them all. You get rid of them. And if you're an animal lover, you might have trouble with this because God said, kill all the animals too. There were times when he said, take care of all the livestock. Don't you leave a living thing among those people. How are you going to reconcile that with Matthew 5.44 and Jesus says that we are to love our enemies. Now, we would think then that Jesus is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. If he is, in fact, the God of the Old Testament as he is in the New, if he is, in fact, the Jehovah God that we find in the Old Testament as well as the one in the New, then isn't Jesus saying something that's totally inconsistent? Well, let me put that under two headings today. The first one is the campaign against Canaan. What God told Israel to do with Canaan can stand as representative of all the Old Testament commands where God tells Israel how to deal with their enemies. God told Israel when they went in to possess the land of Canaan, he said that you are to drive out all of the inhabitants. Now, there was a list of nations that lived in the land of Canaan. There were the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and a whole bunch of other ites. And you can go on and you can read in the Scriptures all these different people that lived in the land of Canaan. God said to Israel, you are to drive all of those people out. And when God gave that command, he knew, and the people knew as well, that there was nobody in the land of Canaan living there that was going to go peaceably. God knew that, and they knew it. Now, let me give you just an example from Joshua chapter 11. And this is where uh, Joshua uh, went against the largest city that was in Canaan, the conquest of this city, the very largest one that was there. Joshua went to fight against it, and this was a city by the name of Hazor. Last year, I had the opportunity to visit the ruins of that city. And I want you to listen to Joshua chapter 11, verses 10 and 11. Here's what Joshua did. And Joshua at that time turned back and took Hazor and smote the king thereof with the sword. For Hazor before time was the head of all those kingdoms. And they smote 
all the souls that were therein with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was not any left to breathe, and he burnt Hazor with fire. How are you going to recognize, uh, reconcile that with love your enemy? If that is true, if what we read in the Old Testament is true, and what we read in the New Testament is true, didn't Jesus change something? Isn't there something different about this? Well, I want you to notice something about all these incidents, and this holds true in every case. God did not say that this is your responsibility on a personal level. He never said to any individual that you are to take this into your hands, and if you catch somebody that you don't like, somebody who is not like you, and this person is not a believer, then you are to kill them. This was never about personal vengeance. When God ordered them to drive out the Canaanites, this was God's judgment upon them. This was a judicial act of God, whereby God said that he was going to destroy all evildoers. And if you look at the civilization of Canaan, it was one of the most debauched, it was the wickedest, it was the vilest, it was the most heinous of any civilization that was ever upon the face of the earth. And if you could only see the idolatry that was there, the sexual perversions there, the human sacrifices that they made against their own people, you would choke on the things that the Canaanites did. You can go there today and you can see the remains of some of that. And there are pictures that I have of the the ruins of Hazor that I won't even show you today because you can still see there a picture of of their sexual perversions. And so you would be amazed at the many stories that come out of that, all the practices that were involved in the worship of heathen gods. And so it's no mystery why God said to Israel, you can't live in the land with those people. You've got to get rid of them. He said they're polluting and they are defiling. They're an abomination. And you have to drive them out by any and all means. If you leave them there, God said they will defile you. Now, unfortunately... Israel didn't always obey God, and so they left some of the people in the land, some of the inhabitants they allowed to live there, and they did become polluted, and they did become defiled, and they did begin to worship their idols, and they did join in their perversions, so that God not only had to bring a judgment upon those nations, but he had to bring judgment on Israel as well. Now you see, that was an act of God's judgment. It's a judicial act. This is not God saying that you take charge of this on a personal level, and you take an individual and you hold him up to scorn and ridicule, and when you see that person is in trouble and he's different from you, that you are to hate that person. But that's the way the Pharisees had misinterpreted God's command. By the time of the Pharisees, this had become individual judgment. It was individual justice. And God said, you can never do that. Now, if that was God's intention, that we should treat this on a personal level, then we would be right here in Roner Park today and we would find someone who doesn't agree with us. We would find someone who doesn't believe Baptist doctrine as we believe it and we would sneak up on that person in the middle of the night and we'd come up behind them with a knife and we would slit their throat. We would take people like that and we'd bring them to heresy trials. We would force them to get with us or we would get rid of them. Now, that's actually already been tried, hasn't it? In fact, one of the reasons why we have this United States of America today and we have religious freedom is because of that very thing. There were people who took this and said, this is to be done on an individual basis, that I'm the one who's supposed to take care of this. This is not 
vigilante justice. And God never permitted this to happen on a personal level. On a personal level, God always says, love your enemy. Do good to him. Treat him well. Try to gain your enemy. And so you can't take the campaign against Canaan and say, well, the Old Testament is different from the New Testament. In fact, if you'll look at the New Testament, you'll find verse after verse where we have the doctrine of endless punishment in hell. And who is in hell? God's enemies. And in his justice, he sends every unbeliever to an everlasting lake of fire. And so you should have no tougher time dealing with God's judgment of Old Testament Canaanites than you do with the New Testament teachings and doctrines about the everlasting punishment of hell. In fact, hell is far worse than anything that you find in the Old Testament. It's far worse than the wars that were fought there because hell is eternal punishment of both the soul and the body. Warfare only kills the body. Jesus said, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now let me ask you something about that. Did God ever tell you that you could say to someone, Go to hell? Did God ever give you the right to send any soul to hell? And yet there are plenty of Christians who use that kind of terminology, don't they? They tell people, go to hell. When God says that what you're supposed to do is to seek the lost. God says that you are to give them the gospel. God says that you are to take the enemies of the cross and with compassion give them the gospel of Christ. Now that's never changed. And it won't change. It won't change until... Christ himself comes back to redeem this world from the curse of sin. So what Israel was told to do as a nation in the Old Testament is not contrary to Matthew 5.44. God in his justice brings retribution. But it's not a command for individuals. Now if you'll glance back just a moment in Matthew 5 and look at verses 38 and 39. There Jesus says... Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now what is that? Well, that's really the same teaching stated in another way as Matthew 5.44. And so if you take the Old Testament commands like the Pharisees did, and you extend the commands that were given to the nation to individual situations then what you end up is with a revenge-minded society. A hateful, revenge-minded society. And that is exactly what the Pharisees had. They had taken these judicial commands, they made them personal, and so thus the redefinition of their neighbor and their hatred against their enemies. Now let me give you another Old Testament example. You might also have trouble reconciling this with Matthew 5.44, and that is the prayers in the Psalms, the prayers in the Psalms. How many of you like to read the Psalms? Most of you do. You know, there's some wonderful, beautiful things that are written in the Psalms. There are pieces there about the greatness of God. There's the salvation of God's people. There's the comfort of God. There's the security that we find in Christ. The mercy and forgiveness of God is taught there. The Psalms have rejoiced the hearts of God's people generation after generation. But when you read the Psalms, you also find some things that are really tough. And you may find some troubling things there. There are some prayers that David prayed that might seem to be quite unsettling. Numerous times as you go throughout the Psalms, you'll find that David prayed for the destruction of his enemies. 
He prayed for God's vengeance. He prayed for God's justice. Those are what we call imprecatory prayers. Now, if you've been with us for quite some time, you may remember in our study of Nehemiah that we talked about the prayers that Nehemiah prayed, and he often prayed imprecatory prayers. And that was when Nehemiah prayed for justice against his enemies. Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, and there was a lot of opposition. They warred against him, and there were times when they lied against Nehemiah. They tried to stop the building of the wall. And so Nehemiah would begin to pray to God, and he would ask God to have justice on his enemies. He prayed for God's prosecution of his enemies. Those are what you call imprecatory prayers. They're prayers that are prayed for God's justice. Now, we also find those kinds of prayers in the Psalms. David often prayed imprecatory prayers. Let me give you just an example of one. There are many of these, but one we can find is in Psalm chapter 63. And uh, you may recognize Psalm 63 because there is a a great verse there, verse number 3, that we take a chorus from. And this verse says, Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. And you may be familiar with that little chorus. It says, thy loving kindness is better than life. It's a sweet little chorus. But if you read a little bit further to verses 8 through 11, you find something here that's not so sweet. Here's what David said as he was praying. He said, my soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of him that speak lies shall be stopped. Now there, David is praying for vengeance against his enemies. And he says that his enemies will go into the lower parts of the earth. Now that is actually the same as saying they will go to hell. And there are some who interpret this that David is actually saying, let them go to hell. Now that doesn't sound a lot like Jesus, does it? And yet, doesn't the Bible say that David was a man after God's own heart? So how do you reconcile that? How can you put that together? Well, the answer is to observe David's life and to see his character. Now he prayed these kinds of prayers and he prayed others that were like it. But when he prayed them, he prayed them as the anointed king. David had been chosen by God. He was anointed by Samuel to be the king over Israel. And he was the rightful king by God's choice. And so when David prayed these kinds of prayers, he prayed them as being representative of God's people. And I also believe that they're typical of the Messiah King, Jesus Christ, who will have vengeance on his enemies. So when David prayed this, he was praying as the representative of God's people. He was their king. It's not a personal prayer for revenge. Well, how do we know that David's character was not really like that? Well, all that we really need to do is look no further than the dealings that David had with Saul. Look at the personal conflicts that David had with Saul. Saul was constantly trying to kill David. When Gary and I were in Israel, we went to a fascinating place near the Dead Sea called En Gedi. And you can read about that in the Old Testament because that's where David went to hide out from Saul. And there's another picture that I took there on the Dead Sea that I'm not going to show to you. And and that was Gary in his bathing suit on the Dead Sea. And so I'm not going to try to describe that one. But En Gedi was really just a, a fascinating place. It's a very desolate place. And high up 
on those rock walls in that place, you find these little caves that are in there. And it's in one of those caves that David hid out from Saul. One of the times that Saul was looking for David, he had his men, he had the whole Israelite army combing the hills, going through all of those caves, trying to find where David was hiding out. On one of these occasions, David stepped in, or rather Saul stepped into a cave to relieve himself. That's not a very pleasant thought, but it happened to be the very same cave where David was hiding. And so Saul was there squatting in the cave, and uh, David's men were hiding in the dark, and Saul was not aware of it. They were in the very same cave. And so David went up behind Saul. He sneaked up behind him, and he cut off a little piece of Saul's robe. Now, I guess that Saul wasn't paying attention. He was sitting there reading uh, better castles and moats, and, and David cut off a piece of his robe. Well, when Saul walked out of that cave and he was ready to go on his way, David called out after him, and he held up that little piece of robe that he cut off from Saul. And David was showing him that he had the life of his enemy in his hands. And David had not raised his hand against God's anointed because Saul was the king. And so he was showing Saul that he was really not an enemy after all. Now, you see, David's prayers are not about personal revenge. If it came to defending God and defending God's people, then yes, David's going to be right there, and he's going to fight for God. But he never took these things as an affront personally. He didn't care what anybody thought about him and what they did against him personally. But what David always thought was, let me show kindness. Let me treat my enemy well. And let me give you another example. And I, and I thought originally that I might stop with that one. But I want to give you another example that really shows the character of Christ in Matthew 5.44 and how that, how that David modeled Christ's character. Now remember again that David was the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. God said that none of Saul's children would rule over Israel. It was going to end with Saul. Saul was disobedient to God, and so God said, the throne ends here with you. None of your children are going to sit upon the throne of Israel. Instead, David was the one who was the rightful heir. He was the one who was anointed as king. Well, you may remember that Saul had a son by the name of Jonathan. And Jonathan and David were best friends. And Jonathan and David loved one another. And Jonathan loved David so much that he was accepting of the fact that David should become the king of Israel, even though that that meant that Jonathan would not be. Later, Saul and Jonathan both died in battle. And then David was anointed as the king over all of Israel. In those days, a ruthless king who was in that situation would kill all of the heirs to the throne. The deposed king, he would kill all of his children. And the reason that he did it, because he didn't want there to come rivals later on. He didn't want anyone to be able to stand up and make a claim to the throne. And so the kings who were, uh, had won the battles, they would go and they would kill all the children of the other king. Well, what David didn't do was that he didn't seek vengeance on Saul's descendants. Now, even though Saul had relentlessly pursued David and tried to kill him numerous times, yet David did not seek any vengeance. It so happened that Jonathan had a son by the name of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was five years old, and his nurse who was taking care of him was running, and she fell and fell with Mephibosheth. And when she did, he was crippled. 
And so from, for the rest of his life, Mephibosheth was crippled. David knew about Mephibosheth, and so one day he decided to call for him. And Mephibosheth heard that David was looking for him, and his natural thought was that what, the reason that David wants me is because he's going to kill me. I'm a rival to the throne. And so Mephibosheth was scared. He didn't know what David was going to do. But David called for him, and then David did a very remarkable thing. And that was that he promised Mephibosheth that for the rest of his life that he would sit at his table and David would feed him and take care of him for as long as he lived. That's the kind of man that David was. Now, he did pray in precatory prayers, but those were not models for his personal life. He called on God's justice against Israel's enemies, against the enemies of God's throne. But time after time, you find examples where David treated his enemies well, and he never sought any personal kind of vengeance. Now that tells us that there's really no difference between the Old Testament and the New. Jesus didn't come to change any laws. He's never inconsistent. It was always the intention of God's law from the very beginning No matter how much that had been twisted and changed by the people in Jesus' time, it was always God's intention that we should treat each other well. And it doesn't mean those that are just in your family. And it doesn't mean those that are your friends. It doesn't mean those only who have the same taste that you have, who look like you and act like you. It means everybody. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we're not done with this subject. We've just got a small part of it so far. Jesus is here teaching us how to model the gospel. You see, not everybody's going to pick up a New Testament and read it. Most people have no idea what the Bible says. And those that have a little bit of inkling about what the Bible may say, they've only heard certain parts of it, and so they do just what the Pharisees did. They take those little parts and they misinterpret them and make them say things that the Bible really doesn't say. There are all kinds of Bible pundits that are out there that have never heard anything more than just a few sentences from the Bible. But they're getting their information from somewhere. They're reading a gospel somewhere. And the gospel that they're reading is your life. They're getting information about Christians from you. So you're the gospel that they're reading. And the question that I'm trying to get you to evaluate in these sermons is what is the gospel according to you? Now look at verse number 47 again. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? What do ye more than others? How are you different from other people? I mean, if people look at your life, what kind of picture do they get? The Pharisees were good at treating other Pharisees well. The tax collectors, they treated other tax collectors well. The Sadducees treated other Sadducees well. The Romans had their little cliques, and they treated like-minded Romans well. So what makes you any different if you treat those that you like well? The real indicator of your account of the gospel and what you are in Christ is what do you do with your enemies? How do you treat your enemies? So we've got a lot to go on this. We need to talk about what makes a Christian different. What what is it that's different about a real kingdom citizen? And this is so important because this tells about whether you are a real believer in Christ or are you just a pretender. Now let's go back for just a moment to the central issue as I close this today. What is the overarching principle that Jesus is trying to get across? 
Well, it's really about failure. It's about human failure. It's about our failure to reach the standard that's been set by God. Now, the Pharisees had a standard, and they thought that it was good enough. They combed through the Old Testament. They became experts in Old Testament law. And so the rabbis had their diplomas on the wall. They had their doctorates attached to it. And they've been teaching the people forever. Here is what you need to do to be right with God. Here are, here's the standard that is to be kept. Here is the thing that if you do these things, this will make you right with God. And everything that they said was wrong. Everything that they put in place was way beneath God's standard. The difference in what they said and what God said was the difference in night and day. And do you know that you can go to a hundred churches in our area today and you can find the man-made standard. You can find the standards that they put out there. And it comes in the form of, of rosaries and statues. It comes with confessional booths and wafers. It may come in a creedal or a confessional standard that people keep. And you go to some churches, and it may be this. It may be the way that you dress, or it might be the haircut that you have. And that's the standard that you have to keep. But the question is, what's missing? I mean, what is really missing? It's the person. You see, because all of that stuff is religion. And what Jesus is trying to teach us is that religion is a killer. Religion without the person is the wrong gospel. And if your gospel, the gospel according to you, is what you do, and all the rituals that you have kept, and all the good things that you have done, then you have the wrong gospel. What you have is actually a gospel of failure rather than one of accomplishments. You see, the real gospel is the perfect life of Jesus Christ. The real gospel is in what Jesus did, having his perfect righteousness, which the Bible says that if you don't have it, you'll never see God. And so there are many people who say, well, I believe in Jesus, when actually what they mean is I believe in me. I believe in what I've done. I believe in all the standards that I've kept. I believe in all the good works that I've done. I believe in all these things, and I have my standard. I've kept my standard. I've lived to my standard. And all the time, it's about what I did for God. They trust in themselves. But friend, it's never about the standard that you keep. It's never about what you can live up to. It's the standard that Christ lived up to. It's his righteousness. And you can't live it. No matter how hard you do, how you try, you can't do it. It'll never happen. Christ has to do it for you. And then he must give it to you. And the wonderful thing about it is that he gives it to you by faith. And when that gospel is in you, and when you have received it, then the gospel according to you will be the right gospel. Now, all that I'm asking for you today, to do today, is to look at Christ. Look at the failures that you have in your own life. Look at your helplessness to live to God's standard. That's what Jesus is trying to point out. And when you look at that, and you find that, and you see all of your imperfections, then the thing for you to do is to repent of those sins, repent of all those imperfections, everything that you've done wrong, and turn it over to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust Him fully for your salvation. And when you do that, it's going to show up in the simplest, yet the hardest of places, the way that you treat your neighbor. Love thy neighbor as thyself. That is the gospel according to Christ. And it must be the gospel according to you if you're going to be a kingdom citizen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we spend in your word today. Lord, how important this command is and how far short we have fallen 
of what Jesus says to do here, to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's so difficult for us to do. We can't reach it without your help. I pray, Lord, that you would give us this perfect righteousness of Christ, which comes by faith. And I pray, Lord, there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as Savior, that they will do exactly what we've asked to do, and that is to repent of the sins of all the failures that we've had in our lives, our failure to give glory to God in all ways, at all times. And then, Lord, may we place our faith in Jesus Christ, who is the righteousness that we need. Lord, bless us. Help us to have faith in the person of Jesus Christ and not in ourselves. Bless in this time of singing today, and we pray, Lord, you would draw someone to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.